Welcome to Tilth Talk Radio. Today we're going to be talking fertilizer price and how it's determined. In our spotlight, we'll take a look at the BioWake Prime launch. Egg History Minute, we'll talk the history of home milk delivery. Cool Beans, that's corny. We'll have some current events and we'll wrap things up with a feel good Friday. With me today are Bill Schombert. Hey guys. Todd Schombert. Hey to all the Tilthies out there. And I'm Matt Brueger, all with Tilth Agronomy. So did you guys have a good Thanksgiving? Get Very your, good. Get your turkey. I did. I had double. Did you have double tot or double turkey? Yeah, oh yeah. Yep. Had double turkey, double ham. Ooh, ooh. Got we one. did not have ham. Ham, ham is officially like Easter food, right? Yeah. And turkeys. Ah, I've I've had both that. Either one. So. Yeah. I, well, I think turkey's officially Thanksgiving food. I think uh, ham, actually, if you, if you really really looked into it, it would probably be kind of a forbidden thing because that's... Mm-hmm. Jesus was a Jew. <laughs> okay. Cloven eating, feet. Eating pork. And not so good. Sacrilege. So it's unofficially the Easter. <laughs> so what, are you trying to kill Jesus all over again? <laughs> that's how he rose again, to tell you <laughs> yeah. to stop eating. Stop ham. eating ham. Um, yeah, I got one more Thanksgiving this, this weekend. Really? So, yeah. You got an extended? Yeah. Yep. Extended. Didn't didn't work out over the four-day holiday weekend? Nope. We had to, got to have one more, I guess. So it'll be all right. This is great. With Packers winning, uh, that just makes any day a good day. So it just helps on Thanksgiving to beat Not only Packers winning, Lions. but really just never... Giving yeah. up the lead right. in that game, they like dominating. Yeah, yes. Compared to how it went the last time we played the Lions, this was, yeah, that was good. It felt like they were the aggressor. Like they just were like, "We're going to come out here and we're going to put our foot down and not pull it up, we're gonna get the ball, and we're going to score." Yeah. Yeah, man. Did you, did you get any big deers? Nope, didn't uh, didn't see too many. Saw some does. My dad shot a doe over the hunting season, so we got got meat in the freezer at least. But no, no big bucks walking through the it's woods like this the year. Third person that said that to me. Now as, I, as, I've asked them if they got their deers, and and they said no. Well, I got a deer, but meat's in the freezer. So, I, Bill, you and I are like the unofficial observers yeah. of deer hunting season. Yeah. So we get to kind of like look back and just see and. It does not sound like a very good hunting season for anybody. Like there was a lot of corn a few, on, like a, a few, but Nate, a lot yeah, of guys too. One, yeah. yeah, Nate's Jake. was nice. Yeah, but enough with like broken racks and just just nobody with any even good like deer stories. It felt like so it the was farm just kind of rents the fields around our woods. Uh, actually, found a dead buck Oof. combining. Did did I didn't hear how big it was, but it's like, hey, did you guys shoot one and? Couldn't find it or something? Like, no, mm-hmm. we didn't see any bucks. So it definitely didn't, uh, hmm. wasn't us. Did you take it? No. no. I, I'm going to guess it was there for a little while. Rotten yeah. Before right. they found it. Coyotes got it. I didn't see it. So I don't know. Couldn't tell you. But generally, unless you see it die, like. Sure. Somebody else seems. shoot it or car hit it, whatever. Like, it's 
probably pretty safe to say you don't want to yeah. cut it up and eat it. At least I don't have to hit it on the road. That's all I... Yeah. As yeah. a, as a non-hunter, go. I want you to take them so they don't eat the crops, and I don't have to hit them on the road. It's good philosophy. Nobody likes to hit a deer. No. All right. You guys want to talk some fertilizer? Yeah, let's... Uh, so how, Bill, is a fertilizer price determined? It is a very complex matrix of factors. Ooh, matrix. I've matrix. heard of that. Have you? Have oh, you heard of that? Are you, the, are you the one, Bill? Uh, no. We'll you talk s- about it. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. What is the matrix? Oh, does that mean you have to kill us after we're done with the podcast? <laughs> No one can no. know what the matrix can You have to pick green or blue. Or was it red or blue? <laughs> red or blue. Red or blue. So potash or super you. Yeah, there you go. Did you like that movie series, Matt? Uh, the first one was good. Second you didn't one, like him? I thought you'd be like all yeah. over Yeah, second one was all That'd right. That'd be right up Matt's alley. They, sci-fi. They got a little weird by the end. Didn't even watch that. Like, they made a new one a couple few years ago. Maybe it's longer than I think, but didn't. Didn't see that. That's the, the Matrix is supposed to be feel weird, Matt. Like that's. It took me like three quarters of that movie just to figure out like what is going on here. That, like, that was a revolutionary there that way where that was not a you know computers were first coming out in 1999. Yeah, and, like, they were out, but right, it was pre Y2K, really. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. The first one. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. Maybe it was the the guy that looked like Colonel Sanders that was like kind of controlling the Matrix. I don't know. Just didn't. Uh, I'm wondering if I, I even saw, saw the later one. I know I saw two though. I saw I the, the first three. I saw the okay. trilogy. I think I own the first movie. Bought it. They just it on on VHS. No, I have it on DVD. Thank you. <laughs> Is this going to include any spoilers? Uh, I, don't know. I think you can say spoilers when the movie's 24 years old. So, but yeah, no, it was good. the The concept was unique. Of like, we're all just human batteries powering the matrix our robot overload it's kind of like terminator in that way like the robots are in control it it has relevance now because ai is a big thing you right chat gpt you've got um google's got their own ai thing now apple's probably got something like everybody's well, jumping now, on the ai bandwagon now all these video games that are you know like fortnite and all these games are you're almost like you're in your own matrix, right? Even now, the memes, like, I, they're trying to get AI to make memes. And I just saw one the other day is, like, do you remember the original Duck Hunt for NES? AI doesn't. Because it, like, tried, they tried to make it, make Duck Hunt. And it, so it was a guy with a shotgun pointing at his TV, and, like, ducks on the living room floor around him. <laughs> and I don't even think there was a dog in the, the picture. So that was a great video game. Yes, I enjoyed Duck Hunt quite. Even getting... You try to shoot the dog when he was laughing at you. Yeah. Duck yeah. Hunt was great. So the reason we're talking movie The Matrix is because... Oh, we're not talking video games? No, okay. we're we're not turning this podcast into a... <laughs> Matt would talk video games. Yeah. <laughs> talk about uh, the... What, what do they call it? The game pad or whatever? Remember the, they like the track and field for NES? That you just bend over and hit with your hands, basically, most of the time, because you could be faster. Yeah, right. 
looked like a twister board, but you <laughs> plugged, <laughs> plugged it into the. Well, new you never use that side. Yeah, you always right. use the other side. There's a new. I just heard this week about AI. There's a singer songwriter that AI created. Anna, what is it? Anna Indiana, and it's some like fake singer songwriter lady. So not like that, Hannah Montana. Not like Hannah Montana. No. 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 Different than that. That sounds weird. I don't know. That <laughs> sounds weird. Yeah, like that. Anna Indiana or whatever it was. Yeah. But anyway, we're here to talk fertilizer, not pop stars or anything else. We got we got I, sidetracked there. Yeah. I got talking to a fellow employee today about what are we going to talk about. And we were talking about gas price and how gas price is actually pretty good right now. She said she was paying to something. I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. And then I got thinking... All these years, farmers talk about how gas price is so relevant with fertilizer price. Like, gas goes up, fertilizer goes up. And I'm, like, thinking, no, that's not how it works anymore. And so I uh, thought, well, let's dive into it a little bit. And it's definitely a matrix of factors that determine what price you pay for fertilizer. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see gas having an impact on trucking and other parts of it. And obviously, you've got those factors that play into it, but that's not the only thing that affects the price. So what are what are your first factors? Yeah, and I don't know there? that these are in any order, but I just kind of put them together this way. Sure. Um, global demand was the first one that I kind of came up with. Of course, our society, our world today, yeah, everything is so globally you know, connected now. We're, you know, we're bringing everything from China that we put in our homes and Shipping containers and this, that, and the other thing. Everything's so global now. So 90% of... It's, the thing that blew me away, I was reading an article from the Fertilizer Institute, and they put on there that 90% of global consumption occurs not in the United States. Really? Yeah. Hmm. So so obviously global demand is going to affect our price because if you know other parts of the world are demanding more, obviously price is going to go up right so that's a big deal is is what the rest of the world you know we're so i think sometimes we get very you know locked into wisconsin or our little world that we don't always see what's going on around us well and i mean you you've got places like we know brazil is a big ag producer so imagine there's a lot of fertilizer use there um from the whole ukraine russia war we've seen Impacts right. on the agriculture of that area, Ukraine being the the breadbasket of the old Soviet Union, and a lot of a lot of agriculture goes on there. Um, though I think they produce more fertilizer than they use, the way it seems, at least from what mm-hmm. what we've talked about over the years with with people. We had that um, I think it was a WAPAC meeting with the f- guy who had a farm in Ukraine, yep. and how the soil there is just so fertile that they don't really they don't need use it. much. Yeah, so. So along with demand, what goes with demand is supply, right? That's the opposite side of the coin there is another factor that affects pricing is global supply. So 44% of fertilizer is is exported somewhere. So we have all this fertilizer, 44, 44% of it is going somewhere else. So if we have low supply or Canada decides that, no, oh, we're going to shut a mine down or something like that, yep, it's it's going so that's going to affect our price. Yeah, and we we have some domestic production, but 
we get quite a bit from other places too. I would guess it was higher than that. That right. the export, like, yeah, forty four percent does not seem as high as I thought. But that's probably good. That tells you that enough of it stays locally somewhere, and is that's a good thing. So, and I think to to me anyway, the next one anticipated crop prices might be. I don't want to say new, but I think in recent years has really pushed it. Like the anticipation of what the price could be really has pushed, you know, corn went to seven bucks. Well, what did fertilizer do? You know, right. Demand, demand goes up. Right, so then right. all of a sudden that goes up to, to meet that. Right. All of a sudden thousand dollar potash or whatever. So, you know, and it's just one of those things where we, we see that price and okay, we're, we got the money now, right? Because the price is good. So we can, we can afford to spend a little more. Um, and it usually works that way. Um, there was a spot in 2011 to 2014 where prices kind of moved independently, where corn was down and fertilizer was high. If I remember right, that was, we kind of came off that, that higher prices of corn, corn kind of went down and fertilizer didn't really move. Um, you know, so, and then a couple of years ago, 21, 22, um, prices were forecasted. Prices were forecasted high that kind of pushed it. So that's where it kind of stayed. If we just, you know, recent history, prices were were high because we forecasted a high corn price and pushed demand. So anticipation of what the prices could be is a factor. Um, next one would be trade disruptions. So, you know, anything that probably is more of like political that gets in the way of, of moving goods and services. And you see this probably in any, anything. It's not just fertilizer, but... Um, it so feels like it can deeply affect fertilizer and crop prices sometimes more than you'd expect. But, you know, we have worldwide demand for all these things and they got to move across borders, you know, basically borders of nations. So things are going to get tricky when that happens. So I could see that being... Being problems when certain companies don't companies certain countries countries don't want to play fair. No, and a couple of examples of that that I found um, kind of recently, twenty twenty one, um, kind of happened with Belarus where they they are like twenty one ish percent of global supply for potash, and um, U.S. and EU governments put sanctions on them because of election fraud and some human rights things that they were going on in that country. And that kind of affected pricing. So even uh, there's exact political reason why, um, you know, it has nothing to do with how many bushels you got or anything like that, or how much rain you got. Yeah. And they're tied in with Russia with the whole Ukraine thing too. So that that's that, <laughs> that whole scenario is probably impacting that supply a little bit too and then you've got um yeah we kind of talked about the russia ukraine thing about that area china had a china had an export ban on phosphate so and some nitrogen in in june of uh, two junes ago so i mean there again china's affecting things they account for 25 percent of the global phosphate exports and 10% of urea, not a lot of urea, but you know, 25% is half, you know, or excuse me, a quarter of, 
of the world's phosphate. I mean, if something happens of that issue, yeah, we're in we're in trouble. And then when you get to the ammonia side, natural gas is more popular, being used more, and so it's directly tied to the production of ammonia. So costs for that are going up. Looks like 2021 it was the natural gas prices doubled. And so the record prices in Europe near the end of that year caused 40% of ammonia production to be either slowed down or shuttered completely. So, And this is, this is obviously then directly what I was talking about initially where we have gas price. This in, in, in this case, natural gas, you know, gas price goes up, fertilizer goes up. What I'm trying to get at with this whole discussion is that when someone asks us why is fertilizer price so high or why is it low, there's so many things and all these worlds have to collide to to make prices go high or make prices go low. So yeah, when we when we're talking making making ammonia, if natural gas is high, naturally our price of our fertilizer is gonna be high. And that's just the human side of things. There's obviously nature's can have a f- effect on these prices too. Well, how many times do we watch the news and and there's a hurricane barreling down on, you know, Houston or or any of those, you know, a lot of those areas in Texas where they produce a lot of fertilizer. So, yeah, natural disasters. Um, 2020 had a nice storm. And then if you guys remember Hurricane Ida, there's so many hurricanes I don't remember. Yeah, I remember that one. Um, so is that after... There was an H one that hit Texas. Then it was it must have been after that one, maybe. I don't remember if that was the same year. This one's twenty twenty one. So yeah, it's weird how you don't you kind of forget about them, right? It, or like for us, Harv- we don't get affected. Harvey, really. Harvey, Hurricane that's Harvey. Yes, yep. That's when we got our dog. He was <laughs> Did trapped. You name Harvey? He was, no, he was trapped. Oh, he was a nice. He didn't like this week. Too cold, Texas dog. <laughs> Anyhow, um, natural gas, you know, fertilizer that's ammonia that's produced in the United States, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Texas, that's 60% of what's made is coming out of those states. So if we get a Gulf of Mexico hurricane, boom, um, that can affect things. So, and how many times have we talked about the, um, a little bit of natural thing here too, but how much? How many times have we talked about the Mississippi River being low? Or now, now I saw the Panama Canal is, yep. is having issues. One farmer told me that um, ships coming over from China now are going all the way around uh, South America, like a thousand extra miles just to get through the Panama because you know, they can't get through the Panama Canal. So, so transportation issues can be a problem that can push. Um, whether it's rail rates, you know, obviously the rail system is, I don't know if depleted is the right way to put it, but just there's less rails out there today than there was, you know, for sure 50 years ago, probably even 20 years ago. Um, yeah, I mean, the rail through Seymour here is a walking trail now. <laughs> so, I mean, there's definitely less railroad tracks active and so that cut off the co-op in town here. With access to rail. You couldn't so. use a walking trail to distribute fertilizer? That'd be a really long, fill your pockets. like, hands across America style. Yeah. 
transportation. Like, here, you take this bucket and just keep handing it down the line. Well, look at how many... Is they're building some new fertilizer plants, how big of a deal to be on rail yeah. is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and what the... And for both fertilizer and grain facilities, is that rail part is a nice part so yeah. that you can get it off on a rail car or on a truck. Is Just nice the two newest ones in northeast Wisconsin here. Or, the one in Wrightstown, they build a huge spur to bring in corn and fertilizer, but now United's putting the one in Center Valley right on the rail there. So those are the two newest plants really around here. Well, when you look at the rail, too, back in college, I was working for a power plant, and uh, all of our coal that came to the power plant came on rail. rail. And then I would have guessed that where that was located, it would have came in on a boat. That used to be how it was. Yeah. It switched to rail. Okay. Well, then there was, would have been probably like 2005 or six somewhere in there. Something happened, I remember, it was a natural disaster, but not only the waterways, but it, like a wa- it washed out a bridge or a bridge collapsed. And just one bridge, rail bridge collapsing over the Mississippi River, we couldn't get coal from. It was all west coming from the west. Couldn't get any more. So now we had to switch to eastern coal, and okay. that came back came on boats again. But all the channels were sedimented in from years of not being used. So they had to go to the, like the port and then truck it. So it would go boat to truck to the plant instead of coming in on a railway where it never had to. It never went anywhere else when so it came on rail. Was so eastern coal better than western coal? Eastern coal, fun fact, is more sulfuric. So it actually uh, is harder on equipment because of the higher sulfur content. It burns hotter. More acid rain. So, I, yeah, it would potentially put more sulfur into the atmosphere, but it also burns out equipment quicker because it burns hotter hmm. than western coal. Damn you, Eastern Coal. <laughs> so there you go. More you know. Um, but yeah, so the I think our, our rail system is such that the reliance on that is is great when it works, but doesn't take much to take that down these days. No. And uh, finally, some kind of domestic supply. So we talked to, or initially back at the top about you know global supply, but... You know, domestic supply obviously plays into global, but, you know, locally here, domestic supply can be an issue if that's a problem. Um, You know, will affect fertilizer price. Um, The United States is the third largest manufacturer of nitrogen fertilizers, um, which is good. It makes our domestic market competitive. Um, In 20... 2008, 2008, there were 13 companies operating 22 uh, uh, 22 nitrogen ammonia plants back in 2008. Um, So, and today, just recently here, now 16 companies operating 35 ammonia plants. So, that's cool, right? Like we talked about how we're so reliant on, you know, outside gas to make that that nitrogen now, and then getting it here, shipping it, all those things that could happen in between well we're not you know we talk about outsourcing and all these companies that are sending plants to other countries and how when you call your credit card company for help (laughs) it's somebody in In wherever another another country somewhere yeah. yeah but today we're running more ammonia plants than we have in the past so that's that's really cool so just wanted to give an overview on on where does our fertilizer 
price derived from. And it's it's not as simple as saying, well, I'm going to go look at what I pay for gas and that's how we should follow it. Well, it's it's like tenfold. Yeah, there's... And probably every year one of those factors is a bigger factor than the other one, right? Yeah, a lot of the factors also that we talked about here also impact gasoline prices, but it, it's it's not always the same factor that is applied to one or the other. And, I mean, just looking at where a lot of these things are made, you know, China with phosphate, Russia, um, nitrogen and phosphate, potash out of Belarus, obviously they've got the natural resource there, and that's something that we don't always necessarily have. We don't have it to mine here everywhere, so your supply is really dictated by what natural resources are in the ground, where you can mine them, um, outside of the ammonia you you can bring in the natural gas and that kind of stuff and probably have a better shot at producing that than trying to produce potash or phosphate good news is as we stand today fertilizer prices are pretty decent not great but pretty decent you know corn you can argue about how how you feel about that but there's always a hard you would ask about saying if the price is knowing if the price is high or low that's always the question like what do you think fertilizer is gonna do is a question i'll get especially in the fall mm-hmm. going into spring and that's that's always a hard question to ask and then people will say that always like eh, if i had a silver ball I, you know if i could tell you that i'd be in vegas like gambling yeah, right and <laughs> i don't know i just never loved that explanation like oh if i could tell you that i'd be doing something better than this it's like well okay yes that's anything goes that way what what we want to get at with this is look at all the little uh, like one of like say just transportation changes that affects it and it's like a domino effect that all of a sudden things sort of domino and change and then you got to kind of fight with it. So one of the things I just still tell people too is just spread over your risk over time. So yes, it's okay to buy you know fertilizer in the fall and then maybe you buy maybe buy certain fertilizers or certain amounts in the fall, buy some in the spring. Buy some, you know, like say alfalfa, buy what you need for first crop, you know, in spring or fall time, and then what you need for third crop, just buy in season potentially. So there's ways to to spread out that risk so you don't have to try to predict, you know, what the fertilizer is going to do. And if you want to try to predict what fertilizer is going to do, then you look into all those factors. And what's hard is those are such worldly factors that usually in our little area, we don't know which is which. Like we don't know what the you know what the um we don't know what's going to happen in a worldwide disaster or what no. supply somewhere else is and demand and all that we see in our little area but not in the big picture so it's a it's it's very interesting of how you know yeah they we they call a lot of these places small town america or flyover states but we're extremely affected by worldwide news mm-hmm. when it comes to corn price and like we're talking today fertilizer price All right, there you go. That's a little discussion on the complex matrix of factors that affect your fertilizer prices. Now let's move into our spotlight for today. So AMVAC Green Solutions has launched BioWake Prime, the EPA-registered bioinsecticide offers a complementary solution to corn rootworm. 
So BioWake Prime is a registered bioinsecticide seed treatment to help mitigate the impact of corn rootworm damage. According to the company, microbes colonize the corn plant and activate the corn's own self-defense against corn rootworm, offering season-long mitigation of larval feeding to protect yield, reduce impact of lodging, and improve harvestability. So according to Ted Walter from Green Solutions, at marketing manager, growers are facing heavy pressure from corn rootworm, a pest that causes the most economic damage to corn production annually. BioWake Prime is designed to complement a grower's existing corn rootworm management strategy by priming plants with biological activity that deters and counteracts root damage caused by the rootworm larvae. Uh, BioWake Prime is sold as a co-pack with BioWake for corn, a biological seed lubricant that provides optimal seed singulation, resilience to abiotic stress, enhanced nutrient uptake, and robust root development. So with these two products, you can uh, you're recommended to use BioWake Prime in low to moderate corn rootworm pressure as complemented to traits and insecticides. It can also be applied to seeds up to 180 days prior to planting. So obviously if you're seeing major pressure, it may not be enough to add this in to your products. But if you, you're concerned, you're maybe the first couple of years in on corn and corn and want to kind of mitigate your risk, it could be an option for you. This could be if you have major and the traits aren't working, you could use it in conjunction with the yeah. traits potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Or in conjunction with a, another insecticide or something like that. Or like you said, Matt, if, you know, if you're not four years, five years on corn, if you're yeah, second, second year, year and you don't see a lot of pressure, well, this is a better way to go about it. Yeah, hopefully it will keep you from seeing that yeah. heavy pressure. You think Coach Prime comes with it? Yes. Is he there? Uh, it's the the he, bottle actually is missing one corner to rep, represent the foot oh yeah, there's that uh, <laughs> Coach Prime had to lose. He, he will tell you to hit the transfer portal, Todd. Yeah. You are no longer needed here. Production moved from uh, one... One state to Colorado. I can't remember where he was before Colorado was at. Um, he's at a JUCO. It's like Jackson State Jackson or something state, like yeah. that. Yeah. All right. Now let's move into our egg history minute. So today we're going to talk the history of home milk delivery, something that I don't think. Any of us can say we remember. It uh, depends. It depends. You remember yes. getting whole milk delivery? My father delivered milk <laughs> okay, all right, from yeah. the farm. Did he deliver it in glass bottles no, to your doorstep and then leave? No, it was a... So stain. you're literally you're the milkman's son, is what you're saying? Yes. yes. <laughs> he was... He delivered in stainless steel cans. Little tiny... Well, not tiny, but... Oh, you what, guys gallon? had stainless steel. We had like a big, it looked like a giant pickle jar. It was a glass jar. No, ours was that's, not glass. That's what we got. It was stainless steel. I don't know why. I don't know how it never like today. I would just see my kids just dump like it, I don't know Dumping how we over. didn't dump it because it wasn't like the cover like closed. It just fit in. I even remember times bringing it like home on a four wheeler. Yeah, you know, on the side, and it, so it, it seemed it just, like it was tight enough or something. Just like a milk. Think of a milk, milk like a big milk like can. Like you would milk 
Not that uh, big. Like a yeah, no, not that big, but a miniature version yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah, like a like a normal milk can you would think like which, used which for had, decoration. Had the lid and then you had to pull the handle over the top. Is no. No, it just had, it like had a like a bucket handle. Okay. Like it was longer. And then the little cap had a little this is great radio. A little Yes, as you're doing little, hand signs. Right, a little hook, yeah. you know, a little handle you put on the cap and you just put it on and he'd bring it home and we'd put it in the fridge and was unpasteurized we survived yeah no that was when we were kids too even though we weren't on the farm we'd go down to my uncle's and and get some i don't remember when we stopped i don't remember where the, where that transition was in our lifetime but yeah it was all of a sudden we just didn't do it anymore so sorry rabbit hole anyway, there, Matt. yes but <clears throat> so whole milk delivery the the kind we're talking about uh actually began in the 1700s so if you didn't have your own cows, as uh, things kind of moved along and you maybe moved into a different career path and didn't have your own cow to milk, you would buy from a local dairy farmer. So the first home milk deliveries occurred in Vermont in 1785. Uh, dairy farms became, became a little bit more commercial. The milkman would come to the door with a metal barrel full of milk or a milk can. And people would bring out whatever containers they had, be it a jug, pail, jar, and the milkman would fill it. Uh, then we went to glass bottle milk. So the invention of the glass bottle changed the delivery. In 1878, the first glass bottle milk was pat- uh, patented. It was called the Lester Milk Jar. And milk was sold in these glass bottles for the first time a year later in 1879. Henry D. Thatcher invented a different glass milk bottle design in 1884. He was the first to include a cap. Soon, more people began to create their own versions, and by the 1920s, designs and advertisements were etched onto the glass. Um, Most homes didn't have refrigeration, so daily milk delivery meant that you would get milk and as much as you could consume without spoiling, as you had no way to refrigerate it. Uh, Customers would place their orders with the milkman, and he would bring that order the next day. Most sat in an insulated box on the porch, while other homes had cubbies, or milk boxes that were built into the house. In fact, some older homes still have these boxes to this day. Uh, Before cars were invented, the milk was transported on a cart. Sometimes it was pulled by a horse, other times by the milkman himself. Uh, So why did that begin to decline? Well, refrigeration and grocery stores. But in the 1930s and 40s, almost every home had a refrigerator. Uh, Fridges replaced ice boxes which was the first step in the decline of milk delivery. Grocery stores, who used large refrigerated cases to store perishable goods, entered the scene in the mid-1900s. So uh, until this time, bread, meat, and dry goods were all sold at specialty stores. Now they could be found all in the same place. Grocery stores made it easier for people to buy everything they needed all in one place. And additionally, after World War II, most people had their own cars, which meant they could get to the store themselves and not have to worry about getting things delivered. Uh, convenience and cost factor also played into it as glass bottles were soon replaced by plastic containers and wax paper cartons. By the 1950s, almost all milk in the United States was packaged in square cartons. So <clears throat> the milk man kind of disappeared after a while until recently. The milkman renaissance has been coming back, so more people have begun focusing on local purchases of food. And knowing where your food is coming from, so the farm-to-table concept. So now, if you're, you can get 
deliveries from grocery stores. A lot of people, it's, it's interesting how it's kind of gone the other way is we went to independently going and buying your own groceries to now there's a number of delivery services for food that would bring it back. So even though they may not specifically be milkmen, your Uber Eats or Grubhub, <laughs> Grubhub Can you drivers. Grubhub a gallon of milk? I would think so. I mean, they basically just stop wherever you want to get food. Why wouldn't they stop at a grocery store? So if if you are in like the valley area, so from Nina to Green Bay, there is a it's Farmer's Best. They're like a home delivery and they do other stuff, but they'll deliver Lamer's glass bottle milk. Sure. And now like I know a lot of those places do you have like a say you got a garage fridge? So they just put all that in your, put it in your fridge, fridge right. in the garage. So nice. you don't, it's not like you have an ice box anymore to no. put well, stuff in. But if you have a garage fridge, which enough people have, well, I've you seen even that. the, if you put a, a code lock on your door, they just let people go into your house, your house and put and it and in put your regular yeah. refrigerator too. Yeah. It takes a level of trust, but. But it is interesting, like you say, the, the comeback of that. And like Lamer's Dairy still do, does. Glass bottle milk and all that kind of stuff, so it's good. So, do you think the Milwaukee Milkman baseball team, if like a prerequisite? Yes, you have to be able to to field and hit and run the bases. What's the Milwaukee men baseball? The Milkman, the Milwaukee Milkman. This is it like a minor it's like league? The, yeah, like oh, the, okay. It's like the Timber Rattlers. Timber Rattlers are the Green Bay Rockers. Well, uh, Timber Rattlers are the Utter Tuggers in June. Right. I'm just, do you think that the Milkmen, though, do you think their prerequisite is they have to deliver? That's their practice. They're yeah, just like, like tossing deliver some milk. bottles of milk. Right. Pulling a cart across the field. Come on, Todd. You don't know the Milwaukee I, d- I don't. No. Wow. It's like you're too, like, sports and farming. <laughs> <collide>. Right. <laughs> Our powers combined. All right. All right. Thank you, Matt and Bill. Please subscribe to the podcast and tell a farmer friend. All you need to do is search Tilth Talk Radio in Apple Podcasts or on Android. Go to Google Podcasts or Podcast Attic. You can also listen on your smartphone or browser. Go to tilthag.com slash podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook and X at Tilth Talk Radio. All right. Thanks, Todd. Now we'll get to our cool beans. That's corny with some current events. So cool beans. Cool beans. Cool beans. Cool beans. Our cool beans this week. Kosher milk, glass bottles, niche markets have helped the Fox, Fox, this Fox Valley dairy reach 110 years. And, of course, we're talking about Lamer's Dairy. So as Todd was mentioning earlier, uh, you can apparently get their milk delivered. But uh, in December of 1913, Jacob Lamer's Sr. and Petronella Lamer's opened Lamer's Dairy. Now, 110 years later, the dairy is still bottling milk in the same place it started in Kimberley. Uh, Lamer's milk was sold right from the dairy farm in 1913, distributing raw milk and preserved cans to Kimberley residents on foot. Only a year later, milk was delivered by horse and buggy in the business's first milk cart. Now, Lamer's Dairy bottles milk from seven northeastern Wisconsin farms, the furthest of which is only 30 miles from the Lamers Dairy Plant and Retail Store, which is located uh, at N410 Spiel Road in Appleton. The plant is one of only three bottling plants left in Wisconsin, according to Mark Lamers, president of Lamers Dairy. And according to the Federal Milk Marketing Order Program, there are nine plants left in the upper Midwest. Only 15 years ago, there were 27. 
Other Wisconsin plants are owned by Kemp's and Quick Trip, which bottles its own milk products. Uh, <clears throat> Lamers attributes their business's longevity to the quality of milk they receive from local farms and their dedication to serving niche markets. Lamers said they uh, frequently, why is your milk, why does your milk, or asked frequently, why does your milk taste so much better than the competition? And he says, I firmly believe it is always starts at the farm. We pay our producers a premium to get the highest quality milk possible. We try to support the community and support local family farms. Last month, the plant processed roughly 1.8 million pounds of milk, its most ever. For comparison, the plant processed a million pounds for the first time in 2013. Today, Lamers Dairy has 36 full and part-time employees in bottles five days a week. In addition to milk products, the plant also produces other dairy base uh, for the other Wisconsin businesses. For example, the plant premixes ice cream for Kelly Country Creamery, and the Fond du Lac area business then adds their own flavoring. Their ice cream, their soft serve is amazing. I've ne- don't yes. think I've ever had Kelly no, Country you, Creamery. Like you have quick, yeah. no uh, Lamer like oh, Lamers like oh yeah, yeah we rented one of those ice cream soft serve machines for. Uh, concessions we had to run for a youth thing and we got the bags of soft serve you know and you dump it in the lamers yeah it's better better than dairy queen better than it is one of the few places you can still get glass bottle milk um even in stores there is a deposit so you got to bring it back unless you want to keep the bottle for some reason um but they also have plastic and other things too so uh lamers i will agree with the, the taste that is just a little bit different than what you find elsewhere, um, a little more creamy, I guess. I don't know if it's. It supposedly holds the integrity of the milk, like the glass bottle. Yeah, like it's. It, I think it keeps it colder for one, and it. Well, yeah. It, obviously, the glass will retain. It you don't get the taste of the plastics, kind of or something. But yeah. I, I've done a blind test, and I cannot tell the difference. Tell. I just meant Lamer's milk in general, not the glass. Right. Plastic, I'm just, okay. Yeah. I did, did like Lamer's and plastic. Did we do that did here? Do that for, I, yeah. Did we do that for? We got to do that for JDM challenge, June Dairy Month the glass, challenge. Again. Yeah, I don't know if we did glass versus plastic. But it's it's especially when it's lame. Usually, you can tell the different types of milks, but if it's Lamer's and plastic, Lamer's and glass, it's it's hard know. to tell. Nah. It, it, you can't. I couldn't. I mean, I think maybe somebody with a more refined well, milk palate could taste you, it. Even if we've done it, we'll do it again. Somebody's got to remember that, though. Yeah, write it down. Somebody, <laughs> we I'm, should. I'm not going to do it. Somebody else should. The the you said their milk goes to that Kelly's Country Creamery. Mm-hmm. They were. I just heard last week they're doing like advent calendars, so you get like a different ice cream every oh, day. Oh, every did, day. I did see that. Yes, yeah, that yeah. was them. They're sold out okay. currently, oh. but that sounded awesome to get like remember that five ice creams to try. Yeah, we'll have to get some of those for next December. But yes, we you can, hear of. The beer advent calendars and the wine and, and bourbon. I'm sure there's the, cheese, uh, yes, yeah. but the ice cream one that's that's a do- that's yeah. pretty sweet. Requires some uh, some care on your part. You can't just leave that one out in the uh, yes on <laughs> the kitchen table. Wouldn't be so month. good. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll be drinking it more than eating it. All right, our that's corny this week. A South Carolina truck driver is suspected of stealing Pilgrim's Pride chicken. So the truck driver was carrying chicken from Pilgrim's Pride plant in Sumter, South Carolina. He is now in custody and charged with theft of chicken. He was set to deliver to two locations in Milton, Georgia. Uh, Christopher Thomas, 65, of Florence, South Carolina, 
was hired by Pilgrim's Pride for this delivery and is accused of stealing the chicken for the purpose of selling. Investigators believe he sold part of the load he was transporting to various locations. They also said they believe him to be in the process of selling more when the deputies performed a traffic stop. With the help of a tip, the Sumter County Sheriff's Department was able to arrest Thomas with the assistance of Lee County Sheriff's Officer, Office Investigator and some deputies on November 25th. So how, how, how do you, yeah. You get to your stop and they're like, okay, we're going to load the chicken in the Woodman's. Uh, we're yeah, first I thought this was live chickens. Yeah. And then I got, okay, this no, is. No, no, it was already yes. processed chickens. Yeah, but like still like, what? You're going to get to your stop and they're going to, the grocer's going to be like, where's my yeah, load? Yeah, they won't like, notice a couple pallets. Yeah. So yeah, it was set to deliver 41,000 pounds of chicken, which is valued at approximately $80,000, which $2 a pound seems kind of cheap. But maybe that's wholesale price. Yep. He was arrested with approximately seven pallets loaded uh, with 215 cases of chicken weighing 8,000 pounds remaining. Oh, so, that's a lot. So I think he sold <laughs> he about 33,000 pounds of chicken. chicken. Who's buying black market chicken too? Like, who? What do you say? Like, I got a deal for you, man. Every KFC, Popeyes, yeah. <laughs> just kept well, stopping like, at fast food restaurants. You guys want some chicken? I wonder what he was selling for too. Was he marketing? Right. Well, yeah. But yeah, there you go. The chicken thievery in South from South Carolina. And now we'll wrap things up with our field good Friday as we are. Edging closer to Christmas, let's talk Christmas trees. Wisconsin has over 1,387 Christmas tree farms with a combined 36,000-plus acres of trees. So each year, Wisconsinites head to tree farms across the state in search of the perfect Christmas tree. Evergreen growers are expecting their biggest crowds the day after Thanksgiving. I did see a ton of trees on top of cars. Over the weekend, just driving around, it's like, whoa, a lot of people went shopping Saturday and Sunday after Thanksgiving for their tree. It was a good, we always get ours Black Friday. That would be the day after Thanksgiving. Yes. And this year, but do you, I, cut, do you cut or? No, we get, um, I actually went with, so my brother-in-law gets like a big load and then they sell them to raise money for a charity. Oh, nice. And so I went with them on Black Friday to get the whole load, and it was a lot of... It was interesting to see. But there's, a, like, you go north, and there's a and lot then, of trees. And a tree kind of fell off, fell off the load and went in the back of the truck. I don't know what happened. <laughs> it, it is a lot easier to handle trees when they're bailed, like, with the rope around it. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was unbelievable how much easier... Then is when that you what get you it, call a tree with rope? Yeah, is bailed, it's all bailed. bailed and, gotta, not bailing hay, you're bailing tree. Right. I thought it'd be like throwing hay bales. It was not. It was harder than throwing hay bales because they're longer and more, you know, you got two sure. ropes on a hay bale, like a small square bale. Easier to handle, but harder to tell what the tree's going to look like when it's done. Oh, yeah. You can't, right. You 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 need it unwrapped to really know. So, yes, I'd agree with that. But So, a few quick trivia things here on Christmas trees. So, uh, already kind of talked about the first one here. 1,387 Christmas tree farms, over 36,000 acres of trees. About 1.8 million Christmas trees are harvested annually here in the Badger State. Over 22 million real Christmas trees were purchased in 2022. 30% of customers buy their tree from a choose-and-cut farm. The average growing time for a six-foot Christmas tree is seven years. 
Wisconsin is among the top Christmas tree producing states and is joined by Oregon, North Carolina, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Washington. Real trees absorb carbon dioxide and other gases and emit fresh oxygen. Thomas Edison's assistant, Edward Johnson, came up with the idea of electric lights for the Christmas tree in 1882. Christmas tree lights were first mass-produced in 1890. In 1856, Franklin Pierce, the 14th president of the United States, was the first president to place a Christmas tree in the White House. To ensure enough trees for harvest, growers plant one to three seedlings for nearly every tree harvested. Nearly 350 million real Christmas trees are growing on nearly 15,000 tree farms in the U.S., most Christmas trees are cut weeks before they get to a retail outlet. Christmas tree in your home will consume as much as a quart of water per day. Is that true, Todd? Yeah. Especially you, so when you, you guys, buy it now. Yeah, yeah, you do real trees, man. I do real trees. Yeah. Bill, you don't do. No, we bought a, my wife and I bought a Christmas tree it, a couple of years before we were married at Shopco. I'll tell you how long ago it was <laughs> at Shopco on sale after Christmas. We figured it out. It's 21. Our Christmas tree can drink. It's 20, yes, 21 awesome. years old. Yeah, so. it tapers off toward the end. Like, it takes a lot of water initially, and I, then by the end, it's... That's when you know it's probably time to start thinking about taking it out of the house when it really stops taking a lot of water. Because it's, it's not uh, not long for those needles to start really dropping. Yeah, I usually wait a little bit longer to get my Christmas tree... <laughs> We'll go in December here sometime, probably next week. Um, and you fresh cut usually, Matt, don't you? I've done both. Yeah. Uh, last year we got actually from the same. Yep. Okay. Uh, at the Center Valley gas station there. Yep. Um, otherwise, I've yeah, I've done fresh cut. I've done pre cut. Doesn't. I don't need I, to do fresh cut. I'm not. It always seemed like fresh cut would be way better, but if you make that fresh cut on the one, usually you got to cut like an inch to two inch off the bottom. So when you get your tree that's already pre-cut, mm-hmm. you make another cut to kind of get the, you know, because it hardens off, and then it'll suck a ton get of water. Get the zone and flow. Yeah, I think again. so. Yeah, I usually buy one that's close to the right height, and then, yeah, cut a, a good couple inches off the bottom, get it set in the stand. I was even looking this year of, like, what, and I've looked other years, like, what to add to the water to make it hold needles better or anything like that, and pretty much all of the things say, like, don't water just just water just water yeah like it can hurt or help you if you add other stuff and it just didn't and you get a free air freshener when you do that because then you get that little two inch chunk of, <laughs> of, of christmas tree that smells piney <laughs> all right well that'll do it for this week thanks for being here guys thanks for having us matt so this week we talked about the complex matrix of factors that affects how fertilizer price is determined in our spotlight we took a look at BioWake prime a potential additive to keep corn rootworm damage to a minimum on your crop. Ag History Minute, we talked about the history of home milk delivery in America. Cool Beans was Fox Valley Dairy Lamer's Dairy, reaching 110 years of milk bottling. Our That's Corny was a South Carolina driver, truck driver suspected of stealing chicken and selling it on the side. And our Field Good Friday was Wisconsin's great Christmas tree operations here in the state. So thanks for listening, and as always, happy farming.